The Sanctuary, a community of Jesus people promoting the glory of God in all things to all nations through gospel-centered missional living. Whether it be working with groups in Africa to build orphanages and help rid the continent of AIDS, or feeding the hungry, giving to the oppressed, and helping the hurting who live in our own community, The Sanctuary invites you to be part of a culture of passionate service. You can change your world. Be inspired. Join the movement. We're going to be in Pathways for this month. Um, We're going to start to look at uh, spiritual growth. We've done this a couple of times. We're going to revisit revisit this annually, probably twice a year. Um, Really, hopefully, I think for the, the span of our lifetime here, because it is important to us. We value your spiritual growth. Um, We want you to be intentionally growing in every way possible, and in particular in your relationship with Jesus Christ, and how that then spills out into every other area of your life. Um, So we've kind of created this uh, discipleship, growing in Jesus pathway for you to follow. Um, And we're going to talk about that over the next several weeks um, here as we do that, to develop and to grow and to mature. Um, They're tied to our church's growth goals. If you remember here, if you remember our membership class, we talk about that when you come in, um, that we've identified nine areas of spiritual growth that we want you to grow in. And uh, the Pathways uh, material ties directly into those nine spiritual areas. So there's a table in the back of the room with an iPad attached to it all kinds of resources. We'll talk about this. If you want to get jumping in today on these pathways, you can stop by that table before you get out of here and kind of get some instruction about how to begin uh, that journey, okay? Um, I think that we're going to look today at at a parable of Christ um, that Jesus told in Matthew 25. If you want to turn there, that's fine. Um, We'll have it up on the screen if you don't have your scripture or your Bible with you. Um, But we're going to be looking at this place where Jesus is telling us to grow spiritually. He's encouraging us to grow spiritually. He wants us to be I'm going to use the word prepared. You're going to hear that word a lot today. He wants us to be prepared. He wants us to be ready um, for something that's coming in the future um, in in our relationship with him. And so today we're going to look at that in Matthew 25, um, that he talks about this in terms of our looking for him and waiting for him and being prepared for him. These are the the ideas that he's going to talk about um, today with anticipation and preparation. So those are the ideas you're going to hear sort of repeatedly today, that we want to look forward for Christ to physically return, for us to have a relationship with him where we see him face to face. And he wants us to do that with anticipation and preparation. Okay, So have you ever anticipated something and prepared for it? When you're kids, you just anticipate Christmas. You don't prepare for Christmas, right? You just anticipate it. Parents, we dread it and we we, pre- we get ready for it. You know what I mean? We prepare for it, you know, and we're kind of scared of it at the same time, right? Um, so what, what's an, uh, something that you have anticipated happening and you've like prepared for it to make sure that it kind of came your way? Horrible example, but it is the first thing that came to my mind when I was getting ready for this. I think I was older teenage, maybe high school, 17 years old, let's say. And a friend of mine had gone to Germany. A friend of our family had gone to Germany recently came back and he, he actually brought us some stuff with him, like, you know, just returning gifts. And, um, I don't know what crossed my, me and the man who is now my brother-in-law, Andy, he was just my sister's boyfriend at the time. And we both have a very strange sense of humor. We decided to trick my mom and my mom is deathly, and I really can't over-exaggerate this, mice, 
that's her thing, man. It just sends her over the top. So me and Handy decided to trick my mom. The Lord dropped a dead mouse on my doorstep. So I kind of blame it on the Lord. And Andy and I found it. We got home first and we were like, oh, and the light went on our heads at the same time. So we got this mouse and we put it in a plastic bag and we put it in the microwave. We did not microwave it. We put it in the microwave. And if it was a cat, we would have just, you know, I'm kidding. But uh, it was a mouse, right? Did you get that? It was a mouse. We put it in there. My mom was out. We came up with this elaborate story. How my buddy Mike came back from Europe and um, he brought us some, uh, these um, like pastries, you know, back from uh, bakery products from uh, Germany. And it's awesome. And we had hers picked out in the microwave and it was ready to go. So she's like, oh, she's so excited. If you know my mom, she was so excited to eat something from Germany. And so she goes over to the microwave and she opens it. And it's one of those double takes where you, you know, and you look in and you get closer and then it hit her what was in the microwave. There was a dead mouse in her microwave <laughs> standing on the chair, yelling at us, my mom. I never heard my mom curse, but this got close. And just yelling at us to get it out of the house and everything. And we, to this day, Andy and I will laugh about this. We think it's hilarious today, okay? We're just big, giant boys, 12-year-old boys, I guess. We think it's still funny. We both anticipated that, and we prepared for it. (laughs) You know what I mean? We were ready. We made sure everything was in place so that when Mom got home, this trick worked. And, man, it worked really well, right? We anticipated and prepared. Verse 13, Matthew 25, Jesus says, be on the lookout. Some of your older versions are going to say, be awake or stay awake. But he says in verse 13, he says, be on the lookout, be alert, be watchful. He says it to us in chapter 25 multiple times, verses 32 to 35, without using the word be awake or be on the lookout. That's what all four of those verses are about. Pay attention. Pay attention, be on the lookout, be aware, be alert. Verse 44, the same thing, the same idea. So in chapter 25, he is repeatedly saying to us, something's happening, something is coming. It has to do with me and it has to do with my relationship with you. Your job right now is to be prepared. Your job right now is to be on the lookout and to be actively anticipating and preparing for that day, for that event. Now, what we're going to look at today is a parable, okay? Now, some of you think these are, the, these are the best portions of Scripture, right? You love the parables. You like digging into them. You want to find one-to-one correlations. Like every time it says there's a seed or every time it says there's a ship or every time it says there's a lamp, you're like, oh, that means this and that means this. And you want to apply direct one-to-one correlations between everything. We misunderstand the parables a lot because we try to squeeze things out of them or shove things into them that don't fit very well. So when we read a parable, which is a story that Jesus would tell to highlight something, we want to make sure we're reading it the way that he intended it. Now, sometimes that's hard. Sometimes, luckily, the disciples are dumb like us, and they're like, hey, what does that mean? We have no idea what you're talking about. He'll go, here's what I mean by that. But he doesn't always do that. Sometimes he just tells these stories and we're kind of left to figure out a little bit of what he's meaning exactly. So I think for us to understand this particular parable, um, we have to read it in a particular way, a specific way, and understand that when you interpret a parable, there's just things that are kind of vague. Um, There are things that that are difficult to draw a lot of the core solid principles out of them. But here's what I will tell you. Every parable has a big idea, core principle, that 98% of Christianity agrees on. And those are the things we want to really aim at. 
Don't get lost in the particulars. Don't get lost in the specifics. We want to say, what is this, what's Jesus trying to tell us? And how do we aim at that? How do we set our hearts uh, toward that thing, whatever that core principle is? So as we read this today, we want to say, and I'm going to throw this out there because some of you nerds are going to love it. There's something called metaphor and there's something called allegory. All right? Metaphor is usually, this is kind of like this. Allegory is, Aslan represents Jesus Christ in Narnia. One-to-one correlation. Metaphor is Lord of the Rings. And I'm not making this up. They had these arguments. These two authors would argue about these things. Tolkien and Lewis would, would bicker back and forth about this. And Tolkien always accused uh, Lewis of being too allegorical, of being too literal about the things that he was writing. And Lewis would always accuse Tolkien of being too vague and too hard to understand about the things that he was writing about. But it does illustrate the differences here. One is metaphor, okay, that's kind of like that. The other one is allegorical. It is exactly that. It represents that specifically, okay? So as we read this parable today, we need to understand the difference between metaphor and allegory. I think this text is metaphor. I think that Jesus is using some big ideas to tell us about big ideas. And if you get lost in some of these details and specifics, you end up in weird, weird places theologically, all right? So I just want to encourage you to not drill too hard into every single little bit of symbolism that you can bleed out of this sucker because you just end up in a bad place. Ready? Here's the core thing that Jesus wants for us today as we're going to read this parable. He's calling us to, I, I think, what's best understood as habitual obedience. Christ is calling us to habitual obedience, a lifetime of good works. He wants us to avoid desperate attempts to make up for negligence and disobedience. Now, have you ever done that? where you've been lazy or negligent about something, and at the end, the ninth hour, you are rushing through to make sure something gets done. If you've ever been to school, you've done this, right? You've waited until the 11th hour to write that paper or to fill in your citations or to study for the test, right? And you've been lazy and Netflix and you've been watching the Ozarks and you've been, you know, whatever's been going on. You've just been wasting all this time at the very end. You're like, oh my gosh, I got to get that done. And you shove it all in there at the same time. Jesus is warning us that we can do this spiritually. He's warning us that spiritually we can live a life of daily habitual obedience and good works. Or we can try the other alternative, which is, hey, I think Jesus might be coming back. Let's get ready all of a sudden. Because he's going to point out that actually that second idea doesn't work at all. It's absolute failure. So he's pushing us toward this idea of just habitual obedience. So I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit lightens our eyes today, you know, in our spirits, right? So that we see this correctly. We understand this correctly. God, we just pray now that the Holy Spirit would do one of the things that you said he would do. And that is that he would enlighten us to the teachings of Christ. You said that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will make things clear to us. So God, we're asking for that today. We're asking that the Holy Spirit shines in our hearts and in our minds. And that as we read this text, as we see these symbols and these uh, these, uh, uh, metaphors and representations of our lives, God, that we understand it rightly, that you change us. God, change me at the core of who I am. Cause it to be burned into me that daily I want to build a faith that will stand. And I want to build a love in my heart for Christ that survives the dark waiting nights as we go through this life, as we wait for you, Lord. So just do this in us now. Let your Holy Spirit fall in this place. In your name we pray, amen. Chapter 25, verse 1. Jesus starts this, this uh, parable. He says, Then the kingdom of heaven 
will be comparable. So he's like, so it'll be like, metaphor, ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to fall asleep. So the first thing we need to understand, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, is that in a first century Jewish wedding, there would be a week of a party, seven days of celebration. And on the first day, when the bridegroom would come to get the bride and her uh, Uh, wedding party, when he came to get them, they would have 24 hours of of a party, dancing and celebrating and eating. And it wasn't just your close friends that came. If there was word, there was a wedding celebration. Everybody came. Everybody just showed up. It was this huge, huge party. Um, that Jesus is talking about here. So for them, that would totally make sense what he was talking about. It was just this all-nighter. The groom would come uh, to the bride's home, usually at nighttime. And part of their job was to have their torches ready. Now, you can look at it in two different ways. There was either a stick, like you see in movies, a stick with rags that they would dip in oil to make sure that it would burn. That usually lasts about 20 to 25 minutes. So you'd have to have a lot of oil to keep that sucker burning all night long, or you've got a little lamp. I personally don't think it's the lamp. I think it's the torch, but it's irrelevant. There's a lamp, a a torch that they have oil in, and in order for them to have this procession at nighttime with no street lights, you got to remember, it's pitch black, right? So to get from point A to point B, you need light uh, to get there. And then secondly, you're announcing it's party time, right? You're going to light the way to this party. So that's kind of the picture that Jesus is drawing. And, And again, in their culture, would have totally made sense to them. It doesn't so much to us. But again, a, another big idea that I want to draw out from this text at the very beginning that is this. Listen, this life, this is so weird for us because it doesn't always seem like this. Maybe it even rarely seems like this for some of us. But this life, guys, we're on the way to a party. We're on the way to a celebration. Do you guys get that? Some of us treat this life like we're going to be doing janitorial work for eternity. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and we're, it's like we're getting ready to do the worst thing we could possibly do, which is just endure another day. And maybe Jesus comes back. Maybe not. Maybe I come worm food and I just rot in a grave for a long time. And then he comes back and, you know, whatever. We sing some hymns, whatever that's like. And, man, it's a party. It's a huge celebration that we're on the path to. Jesus isn't asking us to prepare to do the worst things of our life. He's preparing us to do the very best thing of our life, to get ready to spend eternity with him. And it's this giant wedding supper that we're being invited to participate in. It's a picture of the kingdom, the kingdom that's coming and the kingdom that's here now when we're going to be with Jesus. And then the, the waiting also is part of this celebration. So again, those torches were supposed to be used all night long. Um, I had a friend of ours who, a kid, he was in our student ministry in Georgia, and after he graduated, he just disappeared. I think his family actually all moved back to Florida. And we took our student ministry on a trip down to Universal. We went from Atlanta down to Orlando, went to Universal Studios. We're at the Twister ride. Do they still have the Twister ride there from the movie Twister? I don't know if they still have that ride there, but um, they had the Twister ride, and we're standing in line, and sure enough, 
the guy waiting to take us in, our little tour guide, was this kid from my, my youth ministry. And he was like 20 years old now. He'd lived there for two years. He'd worked at Orlando Studio or Universal Studios for two years. And we were talking to him. We're like, hey, how, what's this ride like? And what's the best thing to do here? What's the, what's the funnest thing that we can kind of go do in the park and all that? He's like, man, I've never been to the park. I've never been on this ride. I just come here to work. And all of us, my teenagers in particular, were like, oh my gosh, man, I would sell my soul to work at Universal Studios, you know, and go on all these rides all day long and all that stuff. This kid just saw it as a job. Matter of fact, it was kind of a drudgery for him. He couldn't wait till he was not at Universal Studios anymore. And it was just stunning to the rest of us how cool it would be to work there at an amusement park and do this all day and then get to ride it after, you know, hours and everything like that. Some of us are treating this walk with Jesus like that. We're treating this entire time of preparation like, man, it's a drudgery, and I think it's pretty cool inside, but I'm just man in the door, <laughs> you know? And Jesus is calling us to be a part of the celebration party of when his bride, the church, comes to him, right? So just keep that in mind. Every time we talk about preparation, we're preparing for a huge cosmic party, right, that God has for us. So I wanted to just kind of throw that out, keep it in mind. He draws the first thing that he does here in this text— is he draws a really sharp contrast between two groups of people. Now, he's been doing this. We didn't read it. Chapter 24, he's already done this like three times. He's told three other stories where he's gone, there was this one group and there was another group, and there was one man and there was another man. And he's drawing these sharp contrasts between people. And here, the two groups of people are one, a group of virgins, young women, who were prepared, intentional, they're working, they love the bride, and they love the groom. And they're ready, right? They're doing their hard work to be ready. Then there's another group, virgins also, unprepared, unmotivated, unloving, and lazy. Those are the two groups of people. And some of you, again, you're going to sit here today and you go, man, Pastor Joe was really hard today. Where I get off the hook a little bit is that Jesus is much harsher than I am. If we were to really dig into these stories and the sharp contrast that he points, paints between people, there's so many of you guys, you want to say, well, I'm somewhere in the middle. And Jesus would go, no, you're not. You're either here or you're here. There is no middle ground in this particular understanding of the kingdom. And that's a little frightening, I think, for some of us. So he draws this really dark distinction between these two people. Now, here's, what, here's where the parable gets hard, okay? And I'm just going to throw this out. I don't know where I've landed on this one yet after studying this several times. Uh, if these two groups of virgins represent disciples and followers of Jesus, this story gets super interesting. If there is a possibility that I can be a follower of Jesus... And at some point he would look at me like a legitimate follower of Christ. And at some point he would look at me and say, you have disrespected my bride and you have disrespected me. My relationship with you is broken, not to the point of losing salvation, but my relationship with you is broken. You're not invited to sit at the wedding table. Now that's a really tough interpretation of this parable. And I don't want to be in that particular group of people. That's the harder one for me. The easier one is there are people who know Jesus and there's people who don't know Jesus. There are some people who get to go to, to heaven. There's other people that don't get to go to heaven. This parable doesn't allow for a clean reading of either interpretation, to be honest. It kind of skirts a line that gets a little difficult to understand. But if the first scenario could be true, that there are 
10 legitimate followers of Jesus, five of whom are prepared, five of whom are not prepared, and to the other unprepared group, he looks at them and says, I don't know you. Man, this, this just adds a different kind of weight to this particular story, if we're going to understand it that way. So, but he's drawing, Jesus is drawing these lines between people who are at least saying they're following him. At the very least, these groups of people, these two uh, groups of virgins are representing people who are saying, I'm following Jesus, or I'm following this bridegroom here. So there's a lot to understand here. Here, There's this contrast. One of the most interesting things that happens at the beginning is that everybody falls asleep. Jesus doesn't say the lazy ones fell asleep. He says everybody falls asleep because the night is long. It could have been, I read the longest, the longest wait normally would be a year. So here's how this would work. You're engaged, betrothed. Your parents would pick your partner usually, and they're going to put you together. And then the date is announced, and the date is they're going to get married. <laughs> That's it. There is no save the date. He goes back to his parents' home and starts working on his house that he will live in with his bride. When are they going to get married? When he finishes that house. Now that could happen three months, six months, 12 months, 18 months. There were two to three year waits sometimes. Now obviously if he has like lumber in the yard, you're not going to do it tomorrow, right? But at some point or another, it's there and you have no idea when this is actually going to happen when this wedding is actually going to go on. So again, that's kind of a little bit. And of course, if you've been waiting with your bridesmaids for a week or two weeks or three weeks, and you've just gathered together because you know it's soon, but you don't know the date, this is a hard wait. And, and some of the adrenaline wears off and you get tired and you get sleepy. Everybody falls asleep. There's two different kinds of sleep. You can sleep with a clean conscience or you can sleep hoping that there is mercy for unplanned errors, your planned mistakes and your unaddressed junk. There are two different kinds of people in this text, and they're all falling asleep. Some of them are sleeping with clean consciences. When he comes, I've got oil. When he comes, I'm ready. I love him. I love her, this bride. And when, when, he, when this event comes, this party comes, I'm ready to go. Then there's another group of people, and you're like, dang, I forgot to do that today. Oh, man, I got distracted by something. Oh, I, ran, I, didn't, I spent my money on something else. I didn't have enough time and money to go buy oil. I hope that he gives me a little bit. I hope there's a warning signal. I hope I get the text right before he shows up. I'll go get some more. There's two different kinds of sleeping that can go on here. So in this context, I'm going to ask you, how are you sleeping? Some of you are like, I don't sleep very well at all. But what I mean by that is, in your down moments, and you think about your relationship with Jesus, are you thinking, man, I'm in a good place with him. I love him. I love his bride. I've done a lot of work to be prepared to meet him. And there's another group of people in here like, oh my gosh, if Jesus came back today, if he just showed up at my house today, that's kind of terrifying. And you don't sleep well. Your heart doesn't rest well in your relationship with Jesus. So there's two different kinds of sleep that can kind of happen here. So how are you sleeping as you're waiting for Jesus, can you rest knowing that you're actively pursuing him or is your resting fitful and burdened by the fact that you're not prepared? Some of you are like, man, I don't rest well because I'm really tired of trying to be good. 
I think I'm getting ready to see Jesus, but man, I'm really tired of trying to be good. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Jesus never asked you to be good. So let yourself off the hook. And if you've been trying to be good to meet Jesus, you're wasting your time. Does that help anybody in here? That should. That ought to let somebody off the hook. No one's asking you to be good to meet Jesus. Right? Are you prepared to meet Christ? Those are not the same thing. I think moral goodness flows out of that preparation, but the point is not to be good. So some of us are tired waiting on Christ because we've just been working really hard. Let me let you off the hook there. You don't have to be. That goodness doesn't even rely on you. Now, some of us just need to be gut-level honest in here this morning, and you need to say, I don't sleep well in my relationship with Christ. I don't have good downtime in my relationship with Jesus because, quite honestly, I'm not even trying. I, I can't tell you how many kind of shocking conversations I've had with adult Christians who would look at me and say things like this, man, I know community is important and I understand that you should live life with people and I understand that I can't do this by myself, but I'm not in community and I haven't ever been in my entire Christian walk. I've never been in close community with anybody. Man, I know I should know more about scripture. I know I should. I I know I should understand more about God and Christ and salvation, but I don't read. I don't like reading. I know I should spend more time in the Bible. I know I should, but you'll leave that little booklet on the chair when you walk out of here today. Listen to me. Listen. Let me clearly say what I'm trying to say to you this morning. There is a group of people in this room And you are lazy in your preparation to walk and to meet Jesus Christ. And if we're not going to be honest about it in here, we're going to walk out of here the same inept, right? Impotent followers of Christ that we were when we came in. Or we can stop for a second and say, man, there are huge gaps in my Christian walk. There are these huge areas that I don't rest well in because I don't put the time in to, to follow Christ better, to be prepared to meet him, to talk to him in this area in my life. So it's not about falling asleep. It's about how you sleep. Verse 6. We'll read the rest of it. At midnight, they're all falling asleep, but at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins rose and they trimmed their lamps, which means they got them ready for them to burn. The foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the prudent ones or wise ones said, no, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. I love that. Their answer is it's midnight. Go to the store. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the hour nor the day. That gets super heavy at the end, man, you know? I've actually read an interpretation of this text that the entire thing would have had first century, Christ- or first century listeners rolling in laughter because everything Jesus says up to the last line is ridiculous. There never would be virgins ready for, getting ready for a wedding that didn't have their oil. There never would be a group of virgins that said, at midnight, go buy some more oil. It's like this ridiculous story. And then at the end, Jesus comes and goes, 
and he pops him in the mouth there at the very end. He pops us in the mouth here at the very end when he throws out that, shuts the door and says, I don't know you. These parables give us a lot, I think, of clarity um, and definition for our time in the waiting. So there's this time in this text where these, these virgins are waiting for Christ and this preparation that had to happen. And I think there's some clarity. You've got to read 24 and 25, those chapters, but there's just some clarity that comes um, as we're thinking about our time of waiting. We live in a time that is the, the now and the not yet. Christians are in this constant tension between what is and what will be. And maybe what is and what should be. And you should feel that tension in you. That you live in this broken world full of painful people and the pain that you live in. But you don't want to be controlled by that pain. You don't want to be ruled by that pain. There's going to be a day when that pain goes away. Right? So in the text, I think in Matthew in particular, if you look at Matthew chapter 5, and we don't have time to do this, but if you were to go back and look at Matthew 5 through 7, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. If that's some kind of a description of a kingdom person, which I think it is, I think Jesus is saying, if you want to know what it looks like to live in the kingdom, here it is. This is what that person looks like. If, if chapters 5 through 7 are, here's what a kingdom person looks like, then these chapters, I think 24 and 25, tell us what we're supposed to be doing while we're waiting for that to become a reality. What should I be doing in the meantime while I'm not the person in chapters 5 through 7, while the world doesn't look like Matthew's chapters 5 through 7, when we're in this now but not yet, we're in the middle, we're in the waiting, what should I be doing, right? What should I be doing with my time? How should I be living? Now, some people have taken these texts, and I think they've gone the absolute wrong way for them, with them. The point of these texts, so you read verse 13, and you're like, be on the alert then, for you don't know the day or the hour. There are ministries, there are entire uh, organizations that have built their um, legitimacy on trying to figure out when Jesus is going to come back, right? Some of you are going to remember some of these things, probably not the first one. And if, if you're a Jehovah's Witness or have anybody that's been the Jehovah's Witness in the background, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus returned spiritually in 1914. It, it's already happened. We're, we're living in the day of the Lord now, as far as Jehovah's Witnesses are concerned. Uh, you've got uh, John Hagee, Hal Lindsey, the left behind. Some of you are like, man, I've got, a, I've got a Kirk Cameron action figure, you know. You've got all that stuff. I even saw the Nicolas Cage horrible version of really bad movies that were already bad. You're like, man, I'm already into this. 1988, does anybody remember 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988? Didn't happen. He, and I'm not lying. That's, that book sold like 500,000 copies. He then published a book, 89 Reasons Why Jesus Came Back in 1989. I don't know who bought the second version of that book, right? If he writes 88 Reasons Why It's Coming in 88 and it doesn't happen, and he writes another one, I'm probably not buying that one, right? But he wrote it and he published it anyway. Um, this has been going on for millennia, millennia. Um, in the second century, so you're in the 100s, there was a group of, of uh, followers called the Montanists. They believed Early on, they separated themselves out in these communities. They believed that a new Jerusalem was going to flow down from heaven and end up in this little tiny backwoods town in Asia Minor. In the 1530s, 
a group of Anabaptists. Martin Luther starts up. Another group of people called the Anabaptists start up. They're in a little German town of Munster. They kick out the Catholics. They kick out the Lutherans. They start baptizing everybody willy-nilly. They start uh, doing polygamy. They start living in polygamy with multiple wives. And when the Catholic authorities come in to reestablish order, it's this horrible massacre. But they believed that Munster in Germany was going to be the place where Jesus would return. And they staked their lives on it. And every single one of them died for it. You don't have any uh, of these people still left around today. They died there. So that's been going on for all these hundreds and hundreds of years. In the last 60 years, you've had this explosion of things that deal with this. Jack Van Impey, Hal Lindsey, John Hagee, charts. There's Bibles. There's Bible studies. There's stuff in the back of your Bibles. There's wall charts, all kinds of stuff. Here's what I'm going to tell you. It's all a bunch of bunk. Okay? Is Jesus going to come back again? Yes. What should you be concerned with? Get ready. Be prepared. There have been Christians for two thousand years who have been looking ahead saying Jesus is coming back and Jesus's answer to all of them isn't circle a date on your calendar Jesus's answer to all of them is be ready be on the lookout be alert be prepared so don't get distracted by dates and charts and cool stuff that you can put on your wall don't don't get wigged out by that the point is be ready the bridegroom is coming right be ready for that celebration that party that we're going to have with him so, again, Matthew's talking about all these things, and Jesus is pointing out all these things. There's these themes in Matthew. So Matthew's trying to help us understand what does it look like to be prepared. If we're supposed to be looking for Jesus to return, and we're supposed to be preparing our hearts and our character to live with him, what should that look like? In Matthew, there's these two big ideas that float around over and over again. Jesus says, and he says it here, he echoes it here. He says, there are people who will say, Lord, Lord, but not everybody who calls me Lord, Lord will enter into the kingdom. Only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. So that's one picture of, of uh, what it looks like to wait for Jesus. The other one is, Matthew chapter 5, he says, let your light shine before others so that they see the Father, your Father in heaven. This is what Matthew's trying to help us understand. Okay. That Jesus is coming, and there's a group of people who get to go with him, be with him, go to heaven, however you want to talk about it. And we're supposed to be living our lives in such a way now that people see Jesus in us. Be prepared. That's what he's trying to help us understand here. So in the book of Matthew, what does that look like? It looks like being nice to strangers. Jesus is really clear. What does it look like to follow me? What does it look like to be prepared to walk with me and to live with me? Welcome strangers, feed the hungry, visit the sick and the imprisoned, make disciples of the entire world. Jesus is pretty clear. What are you supposed to be doing during this waiting time? All this stuff. And it's not to be good, and we're going to talk about that. It's not about being good. It's about preparing our hearts to walk with him. We want a daily keen awareness of the fact that Jesus is going to come back. Preparation for the long haul. So a long walk in the same direction. Okay? That's the way I want you to understand this. We're supposed to be prepared. It's a long walk in the same direction. That's what I think Matthew's trying to help us understand here. So these things that, have, that talk about um, waiting for Christ and being prepared for Christ, he wants this established pattern of obedience in our lives. Jesus' point is this. The end is coming. Now, here's what I mean by that. I think this is what Jesus meant by that. 
He had a lot of different multi-layered meanings when he talked about the end. But I think for me and you, there's two ways for us to look at this. You're going to die. I don't know if we need to say that out loud, but I need you to understand that. You're going to die. So your end is coming. Or Jesus is coming back. That's like our only options. Okay? That's it. You're dying. Jesus is coming back. Either way, Jesus' message to you is the same. Be ready. Be on the lookout. Be prepared. I'm either coming for you individually to take you home in death, or I'm coming for you as my people. Either way, be on the lookout, be alert, be aware, be ready, be prepared, anticipate. It's a party. We're going to have a celebration for eternity. So that's what he's talking to us about here. Verse 13, again, it it just has this idea of being alert. Um, If we don't know when he's going to come back, there's this thing I was going to talk about, Martin Luther. I'm actually going to skip that, skip that thing right there. Um, I just think it's too much. So what are we waiting for? When we talk about waiting, what are we waiting for? Some of us are in this room right now, and man, you're waiting for healing. You're you're waiting for somebody to acknowledge you. You're waiting for, for success or joy. You're waiting for love. Real, true, deep love. You're, you're waiting for uh, money or education or acceptance or somebody to notice you or your own family. You're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting. Here, listen, let me help every Christian in this room. Let me tell you what you're waiting for. Jesus. Jesus. Now, you need to put this in the terms of the, the wedding thing, right? I mean, Lindsay's over here and I'm thinking about you guys and there's other people who are young marrieds and getting married. Listen, I can tell you as a, as a bridegroom of many years ago, I wasn't excited to have my friend Todd Warren sing this beautiful song during my wedding ceremony or our music minister, Robert Wagner, lead the people in two hymns or my dad to come out who officiated our ceremony. I didn't, I didn't rush down in tears when my best friend, Dwayne Croker, stood beside me as my best man. When Mindy Sanders walked down the aisle, oh my gosh, man. Unstinking believable topped only by these two little, not you, him, her, Jenna, and Jordan. (laughs) Really close. Jordan and Jenna coming into the world. Those are the only things that I can look at and say, say, I wasn't waiting for anything else that day except for Mindy to come down the aisle. What are you waiting for? Some of you, your Christianity has been reduced to healing or some gift or some experience, or success, or health, or happiness. You are waiting on lesser things. You're celebrating the shrimp cocktail at your reception, not the fact that you're going to be joined forever to your Savior. What are you waiting? What are we waiting for? Jesus, the person of Jesus Christ, to physically be a reality in our lives. That's what we're waiting for. Why is Jesus even coming back? Why is he bothering with it at all? Why is he doing it? To redeem everything into a new creation. Now, you and I can debate this, and I can get into it if you want to. I think through the fire of destruction and judgment, Jesus redeems everything. He redeems it all. He purifies it all, redeems it all. Matter doesn't destroy it. I think he takes it, and he remakes it. He recreates it, and it's going to be amazing. He's coming to, ju- to, to redeem everything into a new creation. He's coming to bring justice. Now, without raising our hands, I would just ask the question, how many of you have ever suffered an unjust, something that's truly wrong, really wrong? It's unjust. 
Jesus is coming to make it all right. Do you all understand that? Every wrong ever, Jesus makes it right. He brings justice. He rules with justice. He's coming to set all those things right. Here's the third. Why is Jesus coming back? To get his bride. To get his people. To deliver us. To take us out of this horrible, broken world. This broken body that's dying and decaying as we're sitting here this morning. He's coming back to redeem and deliver us. That's why Jesus is coming back. What are we waiting for? Jesus. Why is he coming back to do all those things? Now, how do we cultivate faith that has like a staying power? In the waiting, in the middle, while he's not here, how can I build this faith in me that has staying power? I've already talked about it one time. I'm going to throw it out again. Community. Here's what's crazy about this text. There are 10 virgins in this room, in this house, waiting for Jesus to come. If, like most people, your bridal party is made up of your friends, these girls probably knew each other. They probably grew up in the same village because people never traveled about 20 miles outside of where they were born in those days. These people that had grown up together, they loved one another, they knew each other, they were friends. And yet five of them were lazy, and five of them were prepared and wise. But there's this community. This doesn't happen in isolation from each other. Not everybody comes along, right? I can't drag you into maturity and preparation. But community sets the environment where this can happen. So community, wise use of resources, right? Think about the wise uh, virgins here. They're getting their sleep. They better because they're about to party for seven days and be up for 24 hours straight. So they're getting their sleep. They have oil. They've used their resources wisely to, to be prepared for that day, to purchase what they needed to, to get. So there's a wise use of our resources. And then how do we do this? We live in the not yet now. I think this is the hardest thing. We're called, you and I are called as followers of Jesus Christ to live in light of the cross. So that means I'm called to forgive you 70 times 7. I'm awful at math. I think that's 490 times. I lose track at about 12, maybe 20. What is the point when Jesus says that? The point when Jesus says that is, is that you are my child. You are my follower. You are citizens of another kingdom. Live like it. I know this world is broken, and I know people are going to offend you and hurt you repeatedly and over and over, and you're going to have to forgive 70 times 7. You live like the not yet is already here. So he talks about how we forgive people, forgiving, praying for people who abuse us, taking care of the downtrodden. Some of us, like last week, we need to just do that whole Selah thing and take a break and take a moment and say, man, what was the picture that Jesus painted of my life? What's the picture that Jesus says in Matthew 5 through 7 about what kingdom people look like? Am I on that path? Am I preparing? Am I anticipating the return of Jesus And living like Matthew 5 through 7 is real, even when it's not here yet, you should feel that tension in in you. If you wait until you need more faith, you're going to be like those bridesmaids who had to go buy more and they missed the party. If your faith is too limited to get you through today's trials, how will it get you through the dark night of waiting for the return of Jesus Christ? You have to get yourself ready for this. Not just in the good times, but for the bad times. Because there are some of us that have long nights. And we're waiting for Jesus to show up. 
and it's been a long time. And your faith has to be prepared for that. How do we do this? How are we waiting? First thing I wanted to point out, aren't you praying that at least 50% of us get in? What if Jesus was here this morning and he just started the separation process? And he just came down the middle of the room and he's like, okay, Nicole, sorry. Wesley, I'm not decided yet. Bennett, okay. Good day yesterday. Okay. (laughs) You know what I mean? What if he came in and he just started separating us out in this room right now? I think at that point, not only am I praying that I'm in the group, I'm praying that at least 50% of us get to get in. (laughs) Right? Aren't you? Aren't you hoping? Aren't you praying and desperate for the idea that if there's a marriage here and both of you are following Christ, that at least one of you gets in? (laughs) Do you guys understand? I think the point that Jesus is making here, even if his percentages are off, There is a giant percentage of people who are potentially sitting in this room who say they're following Christ who aren't looking for him, who aren't preparing for him, who aren't actively, intentionally seeking what does it look like to live like Jesus every day. Man, that's that's harsh. That's a tough reality for us to face here. But that's the picture that Jesus paints for us right here. Prepared, patiently waiting, be ready. So many of us have reduced Christianity to the American dream, and it's so ungodly. The American dream is so not God's dream for us. It's so much less than what God wants for us. We've reduced what God wants to us to comfort and a house and a family that loves us. These are all good things in and of themselves, but much less than what Jesus wants for us. Some of us are just about comfortable. We're aiming for comfort. We're mourning discomfort. We're playing church. We're practically in the church now idolizing everything from America to beauty to family. And you're ready for them. If I asked you, what did you do this week in order to be a good parent? You could probably list some stuff for me. How did you prepare for the time when your kids are going to preschool or getting ready for school or getting out of school, going to college, whatever comes, you know, after that? And you spent time and energy and resources preparing for that. Some of you are like, well, Pastor Joe, of course I'm okay. Of course we're okay. We're here today, right? We're listening to you ramble for 30 minutes. I'm in. Jesus is going to give me big points for sitting here listening to you today, Right? So you're like, I'm here today. Some of you, I went to Panitas one time. I sponsor a kid in Uganda. Here's what you've done. You've confused the doing of some good things for the love of God and for loving preparation of our hearts and our souls and our characters and our behaviors. They are not synonymous with each other. You can do good Christian things and your character never change. I would argue you cannot have your character change and not do good things. And some of us have confused those two things. We want our character, our beliefs, our behaviors to be radically altered because we are pursuing a love of Jesus that changes us at the core of who we are, prepared, ready, watching for Christ to return. What's in your oil flask? Now, some of you, you've been waiting for this. You're like, yes, Holy Spirit, You're going to speak in tongues because you think this is about to be your time. Here's what I'm going to say. I think you can get way off on the the oil thing here, and you can turn it to an allegory, and Jesus is talking symbolically. So I want you to be careful. So here's what I would say. If we're going to talk about it at all, 
And the oil or the oil flask represents something. I think it represents several things. Ready? First of all, I do think it represents the Holy Spirit to some degree. I think it represents the Holy Spirit. Now, that can mean the indwelling Holy Spirit or being initially filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized by the Holy Spirit. Some of you in this room, you've never been baptized by the Holy Spirit. What do you mean by that, Pastor Joe? You've never been saved. Your, your oil flask is empty because the Holy Spirit does not reside in your heart. That's the only thing you need to hear from me this morning. Don't worry about virgins. Don't worry about why don't only virgins get to go to heaven. Don't worry about what the tort. Don't worry about anything else. The only thing you need to worry about today is I'm empty inside and I know it. I know when I am by myself at night, I am empty in my soul. I need the oil of the Holy Spirit to fill me up and save me. That's the only thing you need to do this morning. Okay? Then there are Christians... And you've got the oil of the Holy Spirit in you when you got saved, but it's the same amount of oil you had the day you got saved. You're not being daily filled with the Holy Spirit. And you need to do so. I do think it represents that. Secondly, I think it represents good works that come because God is our Father, because Jesus is our bridegroom. I think it also represents worship. A lot of symbolism there, but I think it worship and a heart turned toward Jesus. I think it represents the word. I think it represents maturity and Christ-likeness. This is the whole purpose of what we're going to be doing during Pathways, why we're doing this. Why do we bother? This is our third time in the last 18 months that we're talking about Pathways. Why? We have, I'm going to count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven areas of your Christian walk that we have already identified And we've already listed helps for you, how you can grow spiritually. So here's the other thing that I think is going to be awful, and I don't look forward to this. I think Jesus and God are going to look at us someday. We're going to get to heaven. He's going to go, hey, Larry, talk to me about your walk with me. What did you think about that? And maybe we're like, dude, I don't know, like seven, eight, Jesus. I mean, over the whole thing, eight. I had some twos and ones, but seven and a half at least, Jesus. And he's like, well, man. I put you in a church where some people spent this time to develop this way for you to grow spiritually. You never even touched it. I even created the internet. Al Gore didn't. Jesus is going to go, I did that. I created the internet so they could put it on your computer so you could pull it up on your phone no matter where you were. All that time you spent on Netflix, I pulled it up so you could put it on your phone and you could just walk with me at any point. And you didn't even try. I really think we're going to, in the West, we're going to have these conversations with him. What we waste, right, and what we don't take advantage of. And I think this is one of those areas. I don't care if you ever go back there and pick up a book. Don't ever feel guilted about that. My point is, are you intentionally growing to look like Jesus? Are you on some intentional path for your heart and your character to mature, to love Christ more tomorrow than you do today? That's what I'm challenging you with today, to be alert, to be aware, to be prepared, because you will face your bridegroom someday. In one way or another, you're going to be with him. And he's telling us now to be prepared, be alert. So those are back there. Please avail yourself of those things before you get out of here today. How do I illustrate this one last time? I'm hoping we get to a day for me in my head where everything doesn't go back to what we've just been through, but right now it does, so you get to enjoy it too. So Mindy finished radiation um, on Tuesday, January the 30th. The only reason I know it's a Tuesday is because I wrote it in my calendar. 
after the fact, actually. And it was early. I think she walked out of the room about 9.30 or 10, 9.45. When she did, me and Jordan didn't look at each other and give each other high fives. And go, yeah, we were right. It was Tuesday at 9.45. Woo, we were right. We looked seven months ago. We looked ahead in the future, and we could tell when she was going to be done. Jenna didn't say, bet, I knew it was going to be 9.30 a.m. If you know Jenna, she says, bet, a lot, okay? This was not our response. Our response was not to celebrate how right we were about our predictions and our prognostications. What I want to tell you we did for that day, we made preparations. We bought flowers. We bought balloons. I called friends and family. We bought our presents, and we waited, and we waited, and she rang that stinking bell, and then we walked out to a party. Beth, can you throw those things up there for me? Here's what we did that day. We celebrated Mindy, guys. We celebrated life. We had a good time that day, not because we were right about when Mindy was going to be done, but because Mindy was with us. Do y'all understand that? I don't know how to explain this any other way to you. Jesus is coming for you one way or another, and it can be a drag and a drudgery for you, or you can look ahead and go, oh my gosh, there's a party. There's a day when I'm going to be with my loving Savior, the lover and Savior of my soul forever. I want to be ready. I'm going to buy some balloons. I'm going to get some presents for him, which, you know, Scripture says that, that we're going to have a time where we get to lay things at Jesus' feet. I want to be ready for when the bridegroom comes. The end of the book of Revelation, 66 books, hundreds of pages of walking with God. The last page, the Spirit and the bride say, Come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I think Jesus says, man, I'm coming. Are you waiting? Are you alert? Are you prepared? Joanne Taylor said, we can wait in fear or we can wait in joyful expectation. But as we wait for Christ to come again, know that Christ is waiting for us too. He is waiting for us to prepare our hearts for that glorious reign of God to come in its fullness. He is waiting for us to commit ourselves completely to doing the work of the Savior. Jesus is waiting for each of us to turn our lives over to him, to claim him as our Lord and King. Jesus is waiting for us to follow him as fully devoted disciples. What are you waiting for? The bridegroom says, come The Lord Jesus is waiting on you. Would you guys bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, we have looked at this hard text today, and it is kind of hard. It's complicated in some ways, but the simple big truth is, Father, that Jesus is coming, and you love us more than we could ever understand. God, are we alert? This is what you're challenging with us today. Am I waiting for this? Am I looking forward to this? Am I preparing for this? to be a bride unsullied and undirtied by this world? Am I waiting for this day when my heart looks more like Jesus so when he comes I can lay gifts of good works at his feet and say, I've done all I know to do. I've invested the things you've given me for the work of the kingdom and to look like Jesus. I didn't earn it. Your grace got me here. I'm so glad you're my savior. 
There's work to be done, Sanctuary Fellowship. Work to be done. Work for you to do. All we can do is lay it out. We've tried to, what we in the staff just call it, we've tried to idiot-proof it. We've put it on paper. We've picked out books. We've picked out videos. We've put it online. We've done all we know how to do. And now you just got to pick it up and you got to run towards Jesus. Are you ready? Are you prepared? Are you on the lookout? God, I pray that as we leave here today, we commit ourselves to meeting you. You're waiting on us right now. God, there are people here who need to be saved. Their point, their thing isn't looking like Jesus. Their thing isn't being prepared to do good works, to lay you offerings at your feet. Their thing is they don't know you at all. Their hearts are empty. God, save them right now. Let the Holy Spirit come and fill them and save them.